morning. Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. Our text this morning is verses 4 through 10. So as you're turning in your Bibles there, let's stand and we will read this text together and then, and then we'll pray and ask for the Father to bless our time in the Word. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as living stones this morning, and we recognize before you that we are such by your grace alone. We pray, Father, that that you would help us to see ourselves rightly this morning, and that we would recognize the calling that you've given to us, Lord, that we would recognize our, our identity in Christ the mission that you've given us, and that these things would drive how we understand ourselves and everything that we do as elect exiles. We, we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. The world has gone mad. I heard that sentence three or four times this week. I think all of them came from my wife's mouth. Most of them in reference to the the New York abortion law. I heard that same sentiment about other things though. The, The number of people who think like we do on matters of life and morality and truth is shrinking. Some of us may be feeling claustrophobic, tolerance for us. And for the things that we say about these things is also shrinking. 
But this really is nothing new. The truth is that the church of Jesus Christ has always been a persecuted minority. The world does not accept our message of life in Jesus Christ. We are, always have been, scorned. And we receive and always have received all levels of mistreatment. And in the midst of that treatment, it is very easy to become discouraged. It's easy to become distracted. It's easy even to become disillusioned. And we can begin to think of ourselves merely, merely as a persecuted minority. What a shame that would be when in reality, in Christ, we have received a glorious calling, a calling which contains both a privileged identity and an essential mission. And I believe that the Apostle Peter sees the danger of our becoming discouraged, disillusioned, distracted, and so He puts in front of us this glorious calling, which includes an identity and a mission. He wants us to remain focused on these things. And so with this passage, Peter seeks to call our attention as elect exiles to this glorious calling, our privileged identity, our essential mission on this earth. And as the the apostles often do, he uses a metaphor. And so this morning we begin with this idea that we are a spiritual house. That's, the, that's how the, the apostle begins here. It's the first point in your notes. We are a spiritual house. Look, look with me beginning at verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, speaking of Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The main idea that he's trying to get across is that you, Providence Bible Fellowship, are a spiritual house. So he's reaching back into the Old Testament, he's grabbing language reserved for God's people, and he's applying it to Gentile believers, you. Gentile believers in Jesus Christ, and he's saying, you are God's temple. You are God's priesthood. You are privileged above all people in this world. Now jump down to verses 9 and 10, and you see even more of this exclusive language indicating our privilege and and blessing. Verses 9 and 10, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All of that in verse 9 comes from Exodus 19, where God made His covenant with the people of Israel. So Peter applies all of that to the church. You are God's people. Verse 10 comes from the book of Hosea. So the apostles, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, views the church composed of believing Jews and Gentiles as the one people of God. 
privileged above all on earth. Now, why is this significant? Significant because of the situation that these believers in Asia Minor found themselves in. It's significant because of the situation that we here in the United States in the 21st century find ourselves in. It is quite easy for us to view ourselves as simply a persecuted minority of just a religion. With a little bit of work from the enemy, we might even be convinced that we have been abandoned by God. But but Peter wants to give us some divine perspective. In no sense have we been abandoned by God. But we have been chosen for the greatest privilege imaginable. We have been made part of the one people of God. Through belief in Jesus Christ, we are being built up into a spiritual house. Now, what exactly does that mean, this metaphor of a spiritual house? Well, those of you who are familiar with the book of Hebrews, I know, I know a lot of you ladies journeyed through Hebrews last year. What a wonderful book that is, is it not? The book of Hebrews teaches us that all of those Old Testament institutions... The tabernacle, the sacrifices, the law, the priesthood, they all point forward to their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the tabernacle, God's presence among us. In fact, the Apostle John, in his first cha- chapter, he, he uses language that, that he himself invented. He, he turns tabernacle into a verb and says of Jesus that he tabernacled among us, in, in a sense, saying that Jesus is God's presence on this earth. Jesus is a better sacrifice than the Old Testament sacrifices in in that he removes sin. Jesus is a better priest in that he ever lives to intercede for his people. Jesus is a better covenant in that he gives life and not death. Now with Peter's writing here, we find that in a similar way, that Old Testament tabernacle representing God's presence on the earth points forward to the New Testament church as the visible manifestation of God's presence on earth. We are God's visible manifestation of His presence on earth. His Holy Spirit resides in us. And in that way, we are a spiritual house in a way that the tabernacle was not. We are Jesus' hands and feet. We are a holy priesthood offering sacrifices to God that are acceptable to Him through Jesus Christ. That is the significance of all this Old Testament language. And our great joy and privilege is that we are God's presence on earth during this age. We are not simply a persecuted minority. We are persecuted, we are a minority. But that is not our identity. Brothers and sisters, we are not to be pitied. We are privileged among all men for all time. We are God's spiritual house. We are His representatives on earth. We have been graciously chosen for this based upon no merit of our own, but upon God's own mysterious pleasure. We are the most important, most blessed people in the world. We are his spiritual house. Now capitalizing on on this metaphor, Peter teaches that we are founded upon a great cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ. And that's the next point on your notes. We are founded on the cornerstone. Look again at verse 4. As you come to him, 
a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. So he calls Jesus a living stone, but then skip down to verse 6. He he gets that picture of a living stone from Old Testament scripture, namely Isaiah 28, 16. Okay, so, so in 2.6 he quotes Isaiah 28.16, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now why would, why would Peter take Isaiah 28 and qualify that stone by calling it, This is a living stone. Well, Peter is reminding us once again of Jesus' resurrection. And that's so important to keep in front of us as elect exiles because of what Jesus' resurrection means for us. Remember back in chapter 1, we have been caused to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter is doing that for us once again. He calls Jesus a living stone and he is he's telling us, hey, that means something for you because you are living stones because he is a living stone. Jesus is a living stone. By faith in Christ, we become living stones. His life passes to us, and we become part of Him. This is very similar to Paul's metaphor of a body. We are are members of the body of Christ, and He's our head. Both of those metaphors the Holy Spirit uses to teach us our union with Jesus and how His life passes to us. Note that, 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 that Peter also points out that Jesus was rejected by men. Initially, he was rejected by his own people, the Jews. He's been rejected by many people since then, both Jew and Gentile. But, says Peter, in the sight of God, he is chosen and precious. He is the cornerstone. Now, if you've been in church all your life, you, you know what a cornerstone is. A cornerstone is the the most essential stone in a building's foundation. It sets the course of of the foundation and the walls in that building. It sets the entire orientation of the building. And what this means is that God has chosen to found His house, His presence on this earth, on Jesus Christ, and He has chosen to make faith in Christ the basis upon which anyone is included in His house. So all people are separated from God by sin. Everyone. All people are doomed to eternal wrath under God's omnipotent punishment. But God has graciously chosen to bring salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. And He's chosen to save people from eternal damnation only through faith in the life death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if we were to go back to Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter says it this way, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. He's talking about Jesus. There is salvation in no one but Jesus. Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There are not many ways to heaven. There are not many ways to God. There is only one. God Almighty has chosen to save sinners through his Son exclusively. And we are living stones in the house of God for one reason. We have chosen to trust in the cornerstone, 
Jesus Christ, by God's grace, he has seen to it that we have found and believed in Christ. So, we are a spiritual house founded upon the one cornerstone, Jesus Christ. That is our identity in this world, and Christ is our foundation in this world. But that great identity and foundation carries with it a glorious function or or mission, we could say. We are called to offer spiritual sacrifices. That's the third point in your, your notes. We're called to offer spiritual sacrifices. And so we we look again at verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Again, Peter calls our attention to those Old Testament pictures at the tabernacle in the Old Covenant. People would bring their animals to the, to the tabernacle where the priests would slaughter those animals to the Lord, all of which pictured the coming atonement in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. So listen to the book of Hebrews, which, which provides us with an interpretation of all of that. This is Hebrews 10, verses 12 through 14. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So through one sacrifice on the cross, Jesus perfectly atoned for sins. There there are no other sacrifices required in order for us to be reconciled to God. So so we should ask a question. If we understand that about Jesus, he's reconciled us to God. How can Peter then call on us to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God? Well, first of all, Peter is not calling us to make atonement for sin with these sacrifices. He understands that Jesus has already done this for us and he makes numerous references to this in this very letter, but he also attaches that phrase, through Jesus Christ. These spiritual sacrifices are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Any sacrifice that we would make, whatever those would be, and we'll talk about what those are in just a moment, but any sacrifice that we would make to God could only be pleasing to God precisely because Christ has already atoned for our sin. That's what he means by through Jesus Christ. So, what sacrifices might Peter be referring to? I want to give you a few cross-references that answer that question. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. You can also turn to these passages with me as I read them. The first is Hebrews 13, verses 15 and 16. Hebrews 13, verses 15 and 16. Through Him meaning through Christ, let us then continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good, to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So there we find two kinds of sacrifices. Now before I mention the first, notice that the author of Hebrews, just like Peter, he points out that these sacrifices are being made through Christ. He writes, 
through him. Let us offer a sacrifice of praise. And that's the first kind of sacrifice, a sacrifice of praise. Now, when we, when we hear that phrase, we might automatically think of the kinds of things that we've been doing here this morning corporately. Sacrifice of praise. He says, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Okay, so we, we may be thinking of, of what we've done this morning, singing, maybe raising our hands in worship to the Lord. But if we look closely at the context of Hebrews 13, we, 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 we must recognize that the Holy Spirit has in mind acknowledging the name of God in the midst of an ungodly culture. So let me, let me back up a few verses and take a running start at, at verses 15 and 16 and see if it doesn't color this a little bit for us. Okay, I'm going to start reading in verse 12 now. Hebrews 13, 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. See, see, Peter connects acknowledging Jesus' name, which he, he characterizes as a sacrifice of praise, acknowledging his name with bearing the reproach of Jesus. And this leads me to believe that he's not referring to engaging in worship in, in the safety and relative privacy of a corporate worship service like we've done this morning, but rather he is speaking of openly and glowingly Acknowledging the name of Jesus in the ears of godless people in our lost culture. Or to use the words that Peter uses in 1 Peter 2, 9, proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It is praising him, but it's doing so in a godless culture. Not just here where it's safe, where everybody agrees with me. But it's, it's praising God around people who don't. Saying, this, this God is fantastic, and I must tell you about how he called me out of darkness into marvelous light. So we could say that this is an evangelistic offering, an evangelistic sacrifice. The second thing that we find in this passage is in verse 16. Do not neglect to do good, and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And we could say that this is acts of kindness and generosity. Acts of kindness and generosity. We show the goodness of our God shining through our lives by demonstrating His goodness and generosity. And God receives this as an offering to Him. A good cross-reference for that is is Philippians 4.18. Philippians 4.18. There we find Paul thanking the Philippians for the, the gifts that they sent to him. And he characterizes those, those gifts that they sent to him as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, it, it's so easy to just pass over these things, okay? So this is, this is something that the believers were doing for other believers. But, but this is a, a gorgeous thing if you think about it. Just by being kind and generous to other people, you are able to offer 
something that pleases an omnipotent God who doesn't need anything. What do you give to the person who has everything? You give something to somebody else, and it pleases him. So, we've got, we've got the sacrifice of evangelism, we could say. We've got a sacrifice of generosity and kindness. Here's another one, Romans 12.1. Now, I bet more than a handful of you could quote this one. Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So to our our list of sacrifices here, we could add just our own godly living. Now, the, the, the words that he uses is present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. The context would indicate to us that he doesn't merely mean what we do with our physical bodies. He's talking about how we live our lives. Because following this, he gives a lot of moral commands. Beginning in verse 2, he commands us to renew our minds, to think of others more highly than we think of ourselves, to use our gifts to serve the body of Christ. The list goes on and on. And he calls that that worship in verse 1. It's worship. Walking in obedience Doing the do's, not doing the don'ts, worship. And it pleases God when we are obedient. Using the analogy of those Old Testament sacrifices, we could say it's it's a fragrant aroma in the nostrils of God when we walk in holiness. We, We worship not merely in the things that we say and do corporately here on Sunday mornings, but the things that we do in private. So we walk in holiness. Here's another kind of sacrifice that we offer to God. This one's from the Old Testament. Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. <clears throat> Some of you will at least recognize the chapter. Psalm 51, 16 and 17. David wrote, wrote this psalm after his, after his sin with Bathsheba. And in that chapter, we read these, these words. David says to the Lord God, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Of course, God is is grieved by our sin, but gloriously and graciously, He is pleased. He offers it as as, as a sacrifice of worship, When we approach Him with a broken spirit, when your heart is broken by your sin, when when you are bowed low in contrition, genuinely wounded in your conscience because of, of how you have offended Him, that is a fragrant aroma to Him. And as I as I read the Old Testament and and particularly the prophets, I'm blown away by the magnitude of sin that God is willing to tolerate for a time as He waits for repentance but more so how quick he is to forgive at the smallest turning of the heart toward him. It's amazing. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. One more kind of sacrifice. This is from Luke 9.23. 
Luke 9.23, there the Lord Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now that one does not use the word sacrifice, but the idea is there. When Jesus calls would-be disciples to take up his cross, he's not talking about a necklace. It's also more than self-denial. He does call us to self-denial there, but taking up the cross means embracing a willingness to be persecuted unto death. So that, that's what we could add to this list of sacrifices. A willingness to be persecuted unto death. It's what the word cross would have meant to his first century hearers. The cross was an instrument of torture and execution. Jesus is saying, if anyone would be my disciple, let him follow me to torture and death. If anyone would come after me, let him sacrifice his life. And, and that, that is what he means is so clear from the following verse. This is verse 24 in Luke 9. Whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. An elect exile is willing to lay down his life for the sake of the gospel. And this has to be what Paul had in mind when he, when he said to the Philippians in Philippians 2.17, even if my life is to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For Paul to be poured out as a drink offering was for him to give his life for the sake of growing the gospel. Paul wrote that book from prison, not knowing whether or not he would lose his life. He had taken up his cross for the sake of spreading the gospel. He was willing for his life to be poured out as a drink offering. There's a reason that, that Peter calls these things sacrifices. They cost you. They cost you. They cost you your time, your agenda, your life, and they are acceptable to God through Christ when done, not to garner favor, but as acts of worship and love. And this is our great calling, our great mission in this world. Now listen carefully to this. These sacrifices are not extraordinary in the sense that they are not a special calling of apostles and prophets and pastors and evangelists and super mature Christians. This is the calling of every living stone, of every elect exile, and a glorious calling it is. There is no possible way that your life could matter more, reach further, or have greater significance than for you to spend it proclaiming the excellencies of God in the midst of a contrary culture, living a conspicuously godly life that mirrors the character of Jesus, giving generously from a heart that echoes the heart of God, repenting with profound contrition when you fail Him, willingly and joyfully pouring out your life as a a drink offering for Him. This is the life of a living stone. It's the life of an elect exile. To give our life to this is itself an honor. This is what Peter is getting at. But this text promised that honor, a, a further honor awaits those who believe. Look at verses 7 and 8. 
So, the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, just an aside here before we talk about this honor for those who believe, just an aside. If I, if I were listening to a message on this text and the preacher did not thoroughly explain the last sentence of verse 8, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, I would demand a refund because that deserves some time as they were destined to do. They disobey the word as they were destined to do. And then there's, there's all this language throughout the book of election, including in the, the following verse, you're a chosen race. We've already talked about that you're elect exiles, and I haven't spent a ton of time on that, but this is a great place to do it. So I'm, I'm not going to act like these things are not here, but we don't have time to, to, to give it the time that it deserves today. So, Lord willing, Next time we will return to this text and we'll devote our time to these, these related issues of election and reprobation. And we'll, we'll, we'll dig into what exactly does this mean? That they were destined, they were destined to disobey the word. And what does it mean that we were elect, that we were chosen from the foundation of the world? How does that fit together with this thing of of evangelism. How do these things fit together? Okay. So, aside over. Now we get back to the honor that is destined the destiny of believers. Believers in this world are 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 definitely not honored by the world. We're scorned by the world. We're mistreated. But Jesus told us to to expect this in his farewell address, didn't he? If you're hated by the world, know that that it hated me first. A servant is not greater than his master. We can expect the same harsh treatment that, that Jesus received. But you know, the P- Peter is pointing out the fact that there's another side to that coin. Not, also, not only can we expect the scorn that Jesus received from the world, but we can also expect the honor that Jesus has received from the Father. That's so amazing, it almost seems like nonsense to me. It's unbelievable. So Jesus is this living stone, passes that on to us. We also are living stones. So he's, he's rejected by men. Yes, we take that on too. We're rejected by men. But he's regarded by the Father who's chosen and precious, as are we. We are chosen and precious in the eyes of the Father. Verse 9 tells us all about this. We are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We are precious to the Father. Look again at the end of verse 6. He says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. If you believe in Jesus, you may be scorned on this earth. You may be vilified. You may even be disowned by your own family. But on the last day, on judgment day, you will not be put to shame. You will not be disappointed. Faith in Christ will result in your being honored with Him, 
which is why he says, so the honor is for you who believe. And he means believe in Jesus. This is the second time that he's mentioned this honor. Remember back in in 1-7, he said that the tested genuineness of our faith would result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So gracious, so kind is God that He shares all the blessings of Jesus with us. He, He gives us the life of Christ, gives us the righteousness of Christ, and the eternal honor of Christ. Does he, does he do this on the basis of our own hard work or merit? Clearly not. Does he do it because we are more worthy than other sinners? Absolutely not. We receive these based solely on the lavish grace and good pleasure of God the Father. The honor is for those who believe. Now on the other hand, for those who do not believe, Peter says... Jesus is, is not a, a cornerstone, their, their entrance into the house of God eternally, but he is a stone over which they stumble to eternal damnation. Now, he quotes Psalm 118 here. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, why might he quote that as he refers to those who do not believe? Well, it's a bad thing for them that this stone turns out to be the cornerstone. The stone that these... Builders rejected wasn't just a stone. He's the most important stone. So by rejecting it, they have rejected being part of the house. The implication is that you cannot be part of God's people without embracing Jesus, the cornerstone. But to many, many people, Jesus is a stumbling block. That is, they simply cannot believe. They simply refuse to believe what the Bible teaches about him. And that could be said not only of many, many Jews, but of every other religion that tries to accept God, but not Jesus as God. Calling Jesus a good teacher, not enough. Calling Jesus a prophet, not enough. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the third person of the Trinity. He is eternally God, and He is the only hope for sinners. Anyone who rejects Him as Savior, Lord, and God stumbles unto eternal wrath, so says the Word of God. Peter writes in verse 8, they stumbled because they disobeyed the Word. That, that, that means that they, 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 they disobey the word in the sense that they did not believe the gospel. The last time that Peter used the word word was in the last verse of chapter 1 where he said, this word is the good news that was preached to you. So let me give you that good news, okay? Here, here's that good news very succinctly laid out. This is, this is the, the good news. God is the holy creator of the universe, And by virtue of his creating the universe, he owns all things. He owns the earth, and he has absolute right over the earth and everyone and everything that dwells in it. That's Psalm 24. God gave man one law in the beginning, Genesis 2. A law which the very first man disobeyed in Genesis 3. 
which resulted in sin entering the world. That first man's name was Adam. He's our first father. With his sin, his heart became twisted against God so that he became a natural rebel. His sin was passed down to everyone born to him, including you and me. According to Romans chapter 5, you and I have been born with a natural inclination to sin against God, and we have done it over and over. Romans 3.23 teaches that all have sinned, every one of us, and we have fallen short of the glory of God. That means that we, just like Adam, we've been separated from God by our sin. And Jesus taught, along with all the, the apostles, that The just penalty, the right and good penalty for our many sins against God is eternity in hell under the wrath of Almighty God. There's absolutely nothing that we can do to earn God's favor or to turn His wrath away from us. We can't do good works to to earn His favor or to make it up to Him, make up to Him the bad things that we've done. Romans 3 verses 10 and following says that there is no one who does good. Not even one. Even the the good works that we think are good, they are tainted by evil motives. We all stand guilty before a holy God. But Romans 5.8 says that God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, God, God sent His eternal Son to the earth to live the obedient life that we couldn't, and to die in our place on the cross. God raised him from the dead on the third day, so that now everyone who turns away from their sin and trusts in Jesus alone, not their own goodness, their own works, anything, but trusts in Jesus alone, surrendering their life to him and following him, they're reconciled to God. They're they're forgiven of their sin, they're washed clean, and they're given Eternal life. Peter conceives of this message, this good news, he conceives of it as something to be obeyed. Verse 8, again, he, he writes, they stumbled because they disobeyed the word. This, this gospel that I've just shared, it commands you to repent and trust in Jesus. Listen to Hebrews 10, verses 28 and 29. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? What you do with Jesus has everything to do with your eternal destiny. The most important question you will ever consider is, what have I believed about Jesus? Now, many of you have already trusted in Christ, and you are, as Peter would say, elect exiles. You are chosen strangers of the dispersion. If you have been or are being mistreated as a result of your association with him, do not think of that as a strange thing. Jesus told us to expect it, didn't he? But with this passage, the apostle reminds us of needed truths. To you, Peter would say, you are the most blessed of all people. 
You are God's spiritual house, His holy temple. You are a royal priesthood. You are founded on the cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ. You are called to offer spiritual sacrifices, and you are destined for eternal honor at His side. Remember your identity and mission. Remember your glorious calling. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ, His shed blood for us. We believe what Your Word says about Him. Without His blood, there is no remission of sin. If He was not raised from the dead, we are still dead in our trespasses, and we are of all people most to be pitied, but we know that He was raised. And for that reason... We, like Him, we are living stones. Lord, help us to think rightly about these things. Help us to think rightly about the world around us. We pray that You would guard our minds and hearts from ever thinking of ourselves as merely a persecuted minority. But that we would cherish our calling, our identity, and our mission. That we would rise up with great joy to offer spiritual sacrifices to You, Father, acceptable through Jesus Christ, proclaiming loudly Your excellencies, You who called us out of darkness into Your marvelous light. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.